Wilson, like a cork in the ocean over his head. Marking contest over the top, Subic's great grab. Across the ground, bam, in comes Donny Wurzlow. Got it out to a oh. kick, kick smothered, check, Hunter. Who would have thought the sequel would be just as good as the original? Kicks inside 50, McGovern, McGovern, what a player. Shake needs to be in perfect the premiers of 1992 the 1994 premiers premiers the 2018 AFL premiership team the west coast eagles the show we'll figure out what exactly went wrong and how to fix it We're also talking Andrew Gaff's 200th game, fans back at the footy, and of course, we will be previewing our upcoming clash with the Brisbane Lions. I'm your host, Honey Badger 35 and I am joined this week by Miguel Sanchez. Miguel, how are you? Yeah, not too great. Kind of had three months off from the habit of my my general mood being dependent on how my footy team's going, so... Yeah, had three months off and then uh, relapsed with a pretty big bang. Yeah, back in style. Um, Just a confusing one, a real head-scratcher in round two. We talked last week about a lot of uh, the things that could happen and maybe it'd even be a blowout and what we had to worry about and all this sort of stuff. Well, I don't think anybody saw what happened happening, so uh, no plugs this week, Miguel. I reckon we better just get straight into this round two recap, unpack it, maybe solve it, uh, and then never speak about it again. West Coast Eagles, 6-10-46, were defeated by the Gold Coast Suns, 14-6-90. If you tipped this one, congratulations, you're going to win your comp. If you also tipped this one, hey, maybe give me a call. Let me know the Powerball numbers because, for me, Miguel, this was not just the upset of the round but a very good chance to be the upset of the season. I, I don't even really know where to begin with this. It was a mess almost from the start. Uh, A little five-minute rally in the second quarter made me think we'd settled down and we're working through the rust. And then from there, probably one of the worst losses under Adam Simpson, if not perhaps the worst loss. Where where do we even begin with this? Um, Well, I think uh, as tradition after a a big loss like this, we begin with the airing of grievances. (laughs) I've got a lot of problem with those people and uh, now everyone's going to hear about it. They're going to hear about it. All right, get stuck in. Yeah, it was given where the two sides are at. It was supposedly at it was yeah one of the worst performances not just under Simpson but one of the worst performances I can remember I think going back to maybe 2005 when we lost to Collingwood who were on the bottom you know we basically were made to look amateur um, in every position across the ground on paper I think you guys talked about it last week uh, we were the stronger more mature side on paper um, but, you know our entire team was over 21 Gold Coast had five players under 21. Three of them, I think, in their second game, who Raoul was quite clearly the best player on the ground and the other two made us look stupid. Just going across the across the team, our average player would have, you know, had three years and sixty games experience over his opponent. But if you were tuning in from overseas uh, and you know, watching a game of footy for the first time, you would have thought that the guys in red were the um, senior experienced ones and, and we were the team trying to get off the bottom of the ladder. They just outworked us all over the ground. Simpson talked about the GPS numbers, which were terrible, and that sort of, I think, backed up what we were seeing on telly, which was that the players weren't running. There was no sort of spread from the contest. There was no real um, defensive running to try and chop off their forward entries. Um, The contested ball, I think we we got smashed in, despite the fact we had all the senior bodies around the ball. Um, I think it was minus 22 in overall contested ball and clearances were equal, which sounds all right, but then that means that we got smashed in ground ball gets, which was the big buzzword last year or the year before and something we were supposed to be working on. We just got smashed in it. So, yeah, I don't know. Those are most of the grievances, I think. Now, that sounds very broad and general. Those sounds like general grievances at a club or at a team level. I think we've got plenty of time to absolutely get stuck in and put names on blast. Just individually go through the lineup and bang, bang, bang. Here's where you went wrong. Here's where you went wrong. But uh, look, you're right. Minus 22 in the contested ball. Minus 37 in the uncontested footy as well. The Eagles were second to the ball at every occasion. Uh, We touched on last week 
effort being the key factor in this one rather than skill or experience. And just that we'd started slowly against Melbourne in round one, then a huge layoff. Who knows what was going to happen? We assumed that it was going to be a bit slick, a bit of a wet deck, which obviously proved to be. And the Eagles just flat out got outworked. Um, For me, Shuey stood up and did absolutely everything in his power. He got an early goal, but then in the third, when it was do or die time, he went every time, absolutely every time he went. I thought Oscar Allen provided us a lot in maybe spaced out sort of glimpses, but his impact, very, very noticeable. We had a three-goal burst almost single-handedly thanks to him uh, midway through the second as well. And he, of course, kicked our only goal in the second half, I believe. So uh, Luke Shuey, tick. Oscar Allen, tick. Beyond that, my word, uh, trying to figure out where to come up with five votes in that one. Very, very difficult. We saw Tim Kelly start the game very well, but fade. We saw really not much out of any of the forwards, to be honest. And now, Miguel, a lot of the conversation has centred around that forward dynamic for the week. So where, where do we go from here? We'll get into our ins and outs later for the Brisbane game, but just looking at how it related in that Gold Coast game, what do we do with this forward structure? We've got guys like Archie, who had three touches. Kennedy had five. He kicked a goal and gave one off. So not a high-possession player, certainly, but very, very quiet for Kennedy. Cripps, a senior player, one of the more experienced guys out there that you would think would thrive against the Suns. Seven touches. No, no, Cripps didn't play on the weekend. I don't know where you're getting that stat from. Cripps wasn't out there. Oh, sorry. No, no. This is, oh, was he? No, no. This, was he? It must have been the AFL Evolution Simulation. It says he's got seven touches here. <laughs> uh, yeah, Petch, eight touches. You know, Jack Darling, very inaccurate in terms of his, his goal kicking, but he's kicked one goal, one, touched the ball nine times. He hasn't really done a lot on the day. The forward line was an absolute disaster. The entries were wrong. The mix was wrong. Any sort of efficiency or, or tackling or pressure at ground level was wrong. Every time we went in, the Suns just walked straight out. So uh, did we get team selection wrong going into round two? It's hard to know. The team almost selected itself, I thought. Um, we had a full team to pick from, pretty much, apart from uh, we've got issues and the, the small forward position is an issue. It's um, an identified issue because the club signed two supplementary rookies as you know, who are small forwards who could possibly press the selection. but. I don't think either of them were really in the mix for round two. Uh, they're missing Rioli, they're missing Venables, um, Cameron's injured. So that is probably the issue. But we sort of thought after the Melbourne game, I thought that we'd solved it with Brendan Archie because he'd played uh, one of the best games of his Eagles career, certainly in that role as a small forward. So the forward line, I think, picked itself. The only real question going into selection last week was who would back up Nat Nui in the ruck. And I thought we made the right call there with Alan. And as you said, he was probably one of two or three players that could hold his head up. So that's probably worked all right. Um, but no, the, the forward line and the midfield as well, I think just completely failed to fire a shot on the weekend. You mentioned those young Gold Coast mids uh, getting on top, and obviously the the really highly touted ones are the ones who've come away with all the plaudits. You hate to see a breakout game being at the expense of the Eagles, but you talked about experienced players and mature bodies and guys you'd expect to kill it at the coalface really going missing. Uh, Yo, you look at his box score numbers here, he's got 21 touches and 13 tackles, but really... That didn't amount to anything for me. I didn't see a lot of Elliot Yo. Sheed, much the same. I can recall patches, but not anything really. Redden, I'd love to touch on Redden later in the show, but 18 touches for him, again, didn't see too much of consequence from him. So I agree with you. I don't think the mix was wrong in terms of selection. We, we had, a, like you said, a full team to pick from, and it almost to a degree picked itself. Everybody was pretty much on board with the hickey for a new Ruckman change, and, and apart from that, staying largely unchanged. So we just got punched in the mouth. That's all it was. There was nothing. I've seen people criticising Simpson. I've seen people saying maybe the boys thought it was going to be too easy, and, and obviously I don't have the answer as to how or why they turned up with the effort that they did. But I don't know, you know, analytically or, or strategically what the issue was here beyond just effort. It's very hard to win a game with the best game plan in the world and zero will to implement it. Yeah, that's why I'm, I'm probably one of the ones that thought it was just you know, effort and mindset, and they went in with the thinking, oh, it's just Gold Coast. You know, we will win easily. You know, as you said at the start, no one saw a big loss coming. It was we were pretty heavy favourites, and you wonder whether it might have been better off um, if we'd played Brisbane first up in the hub and sort of you know we had something to worry about and prepare for. But yeah, I just I got the feeling that they 
sort of thought it would happen against the Gold Coast because you know it's the Gold Coast and um, sort of went in very complacent and it yeah, just didn't switch on. Maybe switched on a bit in that second quarter and you know, kicked three quick goals and got back to lead and then thought, oh yeah, here we go and uh, switched off again mentally. But yeah, hopefully, I mean. We're all hoping, I think, that that's an aberration, not a, a sign of where we're currently at. But, yeah, hopefully it's a giant kick up the arse and uh, kicks us into gear for 2020 because, you know, as you and I were saying off air, we've really gone all in on this year, trading heavily to get Kelly in, uh, in you know, what will probably be Kennedy's last year and possibly Hearn's last year and Jedd's last year and so on. So um, we've gone all in on 2020 and all the talk last year was about you know, getting another flag for the guys like Nick, Nat and Gaff and Shep who missed out and then yeah, having gone all in again this year. I think we'll see this week whether the players are actually on board with that and whether they want it. We will, of course, get stuck into a lot of that stuff with our Brisbane preview coming up towards the back end of the show and there's certainly some interesting selection dilemmas this week, uh, maybe a few structural changes as to how we pick our team and, and certain guys maybe being shoehorned into the team but not in their best position. So there's plenty to unpack uh, when we get towards our round three preview. But just then you touched on maybe it would have been better if we'd played Brisbane first up. And I want to take a look at last year's top six, certainly a lot of the clubs that were fancied to do well this season. Geelong aside, now Geelong came into this week, absolutely thumped the Hawks. Uh, Hawthorne went to cut in your park for the first time since 2006 and promptly got thumped by 10 goals. So you're welcome. Tune into the Vic Bias episode if you want to know our thoughts on that. Beyond the Cats, Miguel, you saw Brisbane scrape past Fremantle and a couple of interesting free kick decisions one way or the other or fumbled marks in the goal square one way or the other could have been a very different result. So Brisbane, pretty uninspiring. Richmond and Collingwood, obviously they were playing each other. Tough matchup, but... Ultimately, they both only scored 36 points. Collingwood, same as us, kicked one goal in the second half. Not inspiring footy there. The Eagles, we've touched on, embarrassing, humiliating, awful effort. And the GWS Giants, they were in the grand final last year, absolutely touched up by North Melbourne at home, 80-60 to 60 there. So what do we make of, obviously Geelong aside, last year's top six? Very, very uninspiring in round two. That three-month layoff, obviously not ideal for the better sides or the predicted better sides at the top of the ladder. Is there something to read into that, that they've just all been stood up by younger, hungrier, more desperate sides? Uh, It's a good question. Um, We don't have, you know, we've only got a week to go on, so whether it was rust, but yeah, you would have thought coming in that it was the, you know, the mature sides, the older sides that would, you know, be better prepared. The mature guys would have trained better over the break and, you know, know how to train their bodies away from the club. Uh, and would have been less affected than you know, the younger teams, and it hasn't really panned out that way. The three teams on top of the ladder, undefeated at the moment, are Port, Essendon, and North Melbourne, and I don't think anyone would have seen that coming. So, yeah, nothing's normal about 2020, and it's, um, it's an odd position that we're all in at the moment, but, yeah, I don't know. We might see over the next couple of weeks what the ongoing effect is of the, the three-month shutdown and restart on some of those senior teams, but... Yeah, certainly for us, I hope that uh, we've blown out the cobwebs and we've had our kick up the arse and we're ready to go. Moving slightly away from the Gold Coast game, but obviously a story that did result uh, out of that round two clash with the Suns. It is the suspension of Jeremy McGovern. There were a few very interesting or... or, uh, much discussed talking points out of the match review panel this week across a number of games. Jeremy McGovern's no exception. He has been charged with striking uh, Alex Sexton in a little bit of a push and shove midway through, I believe it was the third quarter. Miguel, an odd one this one because I think we were all a bit worried about Gov getting suspended, but not for this incident. We all saw the fence push, of course. Uh, You've got a situation where Burgoyne's sling on on the uh, Friday night was much discussed, and then Gov's fence push, maybe Sexton's head-high bump. These were all much discussed going out of those round two games. And then we wake up one morning and find out that actually Gov, almost unbeknownst to him it would appear, has struck Alex Sexton in the face. We, We risked it with the challenge. We've lost the challenge. 
And now we are without Jeremy McGovern for round three. Take us through your view of this whole scenario as from from the start right through until now. Um, yeah, it was a real roller coaster, wasn't it? Because you know, as you said, we were sort of we were worried about the um, the push into the fence. I thought it was just a fine, and then that yeah that, that announcement came out that he'd been done for striking. And I don't know about you, but my first thought when I saw the actual you know, slow motion zoomed in footage, I thought yeah, that's a week for that. No question. Uh, and I posted a fair bit about the fact I didn't think we should be bothering with the tri- with appealing to the tribunal as much as we all love a good tribunal uh, thread. But then as that tribunal argument unfolded, I felt that we'd really put up some strong arguments and not uh, allowed myself to hope foolishly. They made a, a big deal about the argument that there wasn't much force in it and Sexton barely felt you know, Gov didn't mean to do it, Sexton barely felt it. Thought they made a good argument there. Uh, they made a good argument about the, the lack of intent with it, and uh, then it, the tribunal comes back and uh, throws it out. And you know, the frustrating thing about that is, you don't get any explanation with the tribunal about whether they've you know, what they've thought of your arguments. They just say nah, um, which is annoying. Um, but you know, the, the whole thing is frustrating for a um, number of reasons. I think you know because you look at Burgoyne's tackle, which you know that's the sort of thing that the the uh, the competition should be stamping out, and now they've they've closed a little loophole that Christian found to get Burgoyne off. Yeah, you look at the bump by Sexton, and that's the sort of action that the AFL should be trying to rule out as well. You look at uh, the fact that in every game, just about there's players grabbing other players by the jumper and you know, throwing fists into the, into the jumper, and if you slow down all of them and zoom right in, maybe you'll catch a few other people getting them in the face, getting them in the cheek with little soft bumps like that, and. Yeah, you wonder how many people would miss games if they started doing that to every little uh, skirmish. But for me, I think the most frustrating thing is that Gov's a senior player. He's our vice-captain now, and he's acted stupidly. You know, the, the context of that incident was very late in the third quarter. The game was pretty much gone by then. Um, the sons are giving us a bath, and he's the frustration's boiled over for him, and he's slashed out not just then, but a minute later when he's gotten the opportunity to push him after he's already out of bounds into the fence. So it's just stupid by Gov. Uh, and to be honest, he probably was lucky not to get a suspension for that push anyway. So you look at it from that point of view, I think he just about deserves the week anyway. But with all we've talked about, about where we sit this season, we need more from our senior player and our vice-captain than stupid stuff like that because we're now going to be missing him for what's basically a must-win game against Brisbane. Yeah, that's very well summed up. It, it pretty much echoes my thoughts in that it's frustrating that he's been suspended and I will get into why I think the whole process is a bit of a farce in just a moment. But sure, it's frustrating we'll be without Gov. But I do agree with you. He's got to be smarter than that. You can't lose your head as the vice-captain. We saw throughout the game, uh, I forget the players specifically, but a couple of the players getting stuck into Shuey behind play and, and he managed to keep his cool in that situation when he's got his back on the field and getting pressed down into the field. You've got your senior players and... Everyone was frustrated. I was frustrated. Miguel, I'm sure you were as well. All of Big Footy, all of the Eagles fans would have been frustrated by that stage in the game because the writing was very much on the wall. There are some players that need to be able to rise above it. And if it is your vice-captain, it's not about Gov, it's more about senior player who is your vice-captain. If you get elevated to that mantle, you need to be smarter than that. So I'm frustrated at the process, but also I'm very, very frustrated at Gov for losing his head. Uh, I saw a stat that we are seven wins and one loss without Jeremy McGovern since 2015. So disappointing. Uh, we've got some players down there that can cover. Barass is very good. Schofield we've seen come in. We might talk about Rotham as a potential in later in the pod. So maybe we being without Gov might not be the complete absolute loss that, that we think it otherwise would be from a statistical point of view. But the other thing that really frustrated me in all of this is... The match review panel and the tribunal's process is case by case and it never makes sense. Now, we discuss this every time there's an Eagles player up at tribunal or on report, uh, but it's obviously not just affecting us. It does affect everybody, understandably, though we do care a little bit more when it is our own. But you've got a system here, Miguel, that seems to be almost entirely predicated on the outcome. Dangerfield was fine to play on, so that sling tackle was nothing. But you compare it to some of the tackles Nat Nui got done for, and because the player was concussed, well, that's an issue. Uh, McGovern pushes Matt Guelphie into the fence, and he's injured, so he gets suspended. But then McGovern pushes Sexton into the fence. He smiles, takes his kick. 
so McGovern just gets a fine. There seems to be a real disconnect between process versus outcome throughout the way they adjudicate these things. And then suddenly, Miguel, on this case, it's all about the process. The outcome was nothing. Sexton laughed it off. He was fine. The medical evidence said as much. He obviously played out the game. But now they're talking about, well, potential to cause injury and, oh, it's all about your, the action. Help me understand this because sometimes it's about the outcome. Seemingly, usually it's about the outcome. Uh, and then every now and then they'll just throw in a process one. And if you're telling me that Burgoyne's sling doesn't have the potential to cause an injury or Sexton's bump doesn't have the potential to cause injury or McGovern pushing Sexton into the fence doesn't have the potential to cause injury, well, you're just wrong. They all do. And suddenly when you go to the tribunal, now that's an extra sort of case you have to argue against. Help me understand how they come to any of these conclusions. Well, I've got absolutely no idea how I'm going to help you understand um, because I don't. But, yeah, look, I think it all comes back really to the when they introduced this grading system and they had the points system and they've now chucked out the points, but they've still left it with, you know, we assess it, what's the offence, you know, what's the conduct, is it intentional or reckless, what's the outcome to the player, and you put all that in and it spits out, you know, a fine or a week or two weeks or whatever. And it's it's all sort of because of that. You can argue about whether the impact should have that much weighting that it makes, you know, a difference of a week versus a fine in some of the cases, but really what got gov is that it, you know, striking is um, weighted more heavily than rough conduct because rough conduct is usually a footy action, you know, a tackle, even if it's a, a shocking tackle like uh, like Burgoyne's, or a bump, even if it's a shocking bump like Burgoyne, like uh, McGovern's on Sexton, is a footy action, whereas, you know, striking someone in the face isn't a footy action. So he's been penalised for that, really. Um, that's where it comes from, but... Uh, yeah, that system was introduced probably 15 or 20 years ago now to um, to do away with the fact that um, there was real uncertainty at the tribunal that you'd go along and basically the tribunal would just come up, would pluck a number out of the air and say, we think that's worth about three three weeks or two weeks or a reprimand or something. And uh, um, clubs didn't like that and they wanted a bit more certainty. So this is the system we've got. But yeah, it definitely does throw up anomalies like uh, like we've seen this weekend. So we will, of course, be without Gov, and yeah, we will uh, maybe pick his replacement when we get to the round three preview, but for myself, frustrated with it from a process point of view, obviously, as I've just discussed, but similarly, frustrated with Gov, be smarter, wise up, you're the vice captain, you can't have players losing their call like that, and uh, yeah, it leaves us in a, a very precarious position ahead of round three. Now, speaking of round three and our clash with the Lions... The AFL have announced today that there will be crowds back in the Queensland hub and back throughout the Queensland games. This obviously affects our game at the Gabba this week. Crowds of up to 2,000 can be back at the Queensland venues. We have been allocated 50 5-0 Eagles members this weekend. So congratulations to those 50 uh, Queensland-based Eagles members and hope we can get the win for you. I hope you can make a lot of noise. But... Miguel, we saw fans back at the showdown last week. Now Queensland's slowly reintroducing them. There's been talk of fans in New South Wales as well. Long term, for the rest of the season, where do you think this leaves us in terms of attendance? Do you expect to see Eagles fans back at Optus if we do indeed get this WA hub and and get to come back here at some point in season 2020? I think that's the bigger issue is whether we get to see any games at Optus this year because of the the ongoing border issue and I was going to say off the off off the start but I didn't really want to jinx us that the only thing really that could have made uh, this week go any worse after you know bad loss to bottom placed side and um, vice captain getting suspended would have been uh, an announcement that there was going to be no footy at Optus Stadium for the year but I think you know haven't heard anything for the last week or so but it's sounding like the Perth hub will happen and We'll eventually get some games, and if that's the case, then um, yeah, certainly uh, the way WA's gone uh, in this pandemic with keeping its numbers down, and you know stuff's starting to reopen now. So by the time we get some footy in, whatever it is, a month or six weeks or whatever time, yeah, we should really be able to uh, to get some crowds into the game, which will be good, uh, and it'll probably involve a massive bun fight over the seats, but. We'll cross that bridge, I suppose, when we come to it. But, yeah, we should, um, should get some people back in and footy at Optus Stadium, which will be great. Now, it won't be as loud as a packed Optus Stadium, but the empty stadium and the, the acoustics of it all, I reckon you could get a nice echo going. What do you reckon would actually be more intimidating? A, a 
sort of animalistic, a real tribal 60,000 people booing all at once, or a very haunting, echoey boo that sort of just radiates throughout the, uh, throughout the stadium as you're lining up for goal? What's worse for the incoming opposition? Mm, I don't know. The, the smaller crowd, maybe you can get some... If you've got some real comedians in the crowd, then maybe you can get some real pointed sledges at players lining up for goal, which might put them off a bit more than just the big background noise of boos that they would have come to expect any time they're kicking for goal in a, in a um, away game stadium. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think if you'd ask the players, they'd probably um, prefer to be playing against 2,000 rabid WA fans than 60,000 rabid WA fans. So uh, I think if we could if we could get a full crowd back in there and uh, making the sort of noise that we've heard in some of the finals games in particular when it's gotten really, really loud in there, I think that that would be better. But I don't know if we'll get that back. I think there'll be limits on crowds if we get them. I like your idea about the very well-researched, very specifically tailored, personalised, deep-cutting sledges for uh, on, a, on a player-by-player basis. We'll get maybe have a whip around on the board and we'll get a, a, a private eye going following all of week-to-week opposition. Moving along, and just before we get into the full round three preview, we do, of course, have a significant milestone coming up this week. That is Andrew Gaff's 200th game for the West Coast Eagles. Miguel, an absolutely inspiring player at times. He's a player who's copped his fair share of criticism at other times as well. He's somewhat divisive, but he plays an integral role that I think Eagles fans have really come to appreciate, that sort of death-by-a-thousand-cuts role. He racks up the ball on the outside. He's won a club best and fairest. He's twice been an All-Australian. Aside from his first year with the club, he's been in our top 10 for our BNF every year. So I think Eagles fans at this point definitely find him a very, very valuable asset to the club. It is his 200th game. He's still quite a young player, having just turned 28. So... This is uh, maybe, in Andrew Gaffer, our, our real chance to see another 300-gamer join, hopefully, Shannon Hearn. What do you make of Gaffey's first 199 games, and, and where do we go from here with Gaff's role and, and Gaff uh, trying to hit that elusive 300-game milestone? Yeah, I, li- I like his role. Um, he's gone a bit more inside in, over the past couple of years, which uh, not a huge fan of. Um, I mean, it gives him he's not a hard ball winner obviously he's a link up player putting him in the you know, in the middle in bounce downs gives him the opportunity to sort of get that first hand pass off but it also means that you've that Nick Nat's probably got one less guy that he's going to tap to because he's not going to go straight to Gaff or down in Gaff's direction really um so I'd still prefer him coming off the wing I think but I'm a bit maybe old fashioned and you know have the the difference between inside players and outside players in my mind but yeah he's been He's been great for us. He's um, he's just so consistent. You know, he misses apart from when he's throwing haymakers at Dockers players. He misses very very few games, and uh, um, yeah, he's probably one of the fastest. I did mean to look up the stats before we did this. Um, probably one of the fastest guys to get to two hundred. One of the youngest guys um, at our club certainly. And yeah, if he hangs around, uh, and that's all sounding reasonable, um, that he will do away with that two year trigger he's got in his new contract. If he does hang around, then yeah, he certainly could be one that gets to 300 for us, which is great. I think he's a player that's been elevated year on year in the estimation of Eagles fans and indeed probably the league as well, you'd say, because there were times in the past when the club maybe wasn't doing so well that you had fans frustrated at him, uh, myself definitely included, in terms of maybe he doesn't go in as hard as he could and yeah, he gets a lot of touches, but where does it get us, this sort of stuff, but under Simpson, as with a lot of the players indeed, he's gone up another level. 2015, a great year from him. 2018 as well, All-Australian in that season. He's smashing it out of the park week on week. You can always rely on him to run harder than his opponent. It was exactly what was advertised to us when we drafted him, was that he will just run all day and he's going to death by a thousand cuts. He's just going to get the ball and constantly be a thorn in the side of the opponent's. Miguel, when we look at that draft class that he was in, he was, of course, taken fourth overall. Unless there's an obvious name that I'm missing going through this draft class, I think he's probably the best player in it. Maybe Jack Darling, but I, you know, I, I certainly don't have him lower than second in that 2010 draft class. You look at Swallow, uh, Bennell, Sam Day, Polek, Conker, Caddy, Heppel, Prestia, uh, Dan Gorringe, everybody's bloody favourite sports bet mouthpiece. Aside from Jack Darling, like I said, or maybe 
Uh, Paul Puopolo went 66 in that draft. He's nearly played 200, and of course he's got the three flags with the Hawks. I reckon there's a fair chance that Andrew Gaff is the best player in his draft class. Uh, Tom Lynch went, I think, just outside the top 10. He's um, he's come along quite well. Uh, yeah, Swallow, Heppel, obviously, at Essendon. It, um, it's a pretty good year, that one. But, um, yeah, we, we're very happy, I think, having taken Gaff when we did. And, yeah, I think Darling at 20, Lice said at 29 as well. Um, that was, And then Gaff in the rookie draft. That was a really, really good year for us and um, put in place some of the pieces for that um, 2018 flag. Yeah, Gaff, I don't know whether he's the best out of there. There's some big names, but he's um, yeah, definitely one of them. Yeah, we'd be very happy casting my mind back. I think we were tossing up at the time, or at least on the board, we were tossing up. I don't know what the club was doing. Um, between Gaff, Heppel and Polak, and I think he- Heppel and Polak have been very good players as well, but I'm very happy with the decision we made there. Absolutely, and high hopes for Gaff right from the start, which you could tell by the fact that they gave him that number three jumper. It's a it's a big legacy at the Eagles, a tough one to live up to. You compare him to your Chris Mainwarings and, and your Chris Judds, it is a ridiculous class to be a part of, but as he notches up game 200, he sits just one behind Mainwaring and, of course, Judd playing 134, 135, somewhere in that vicinity. So he's about to be the longest tenured player in, in that jumper. What do we make of Andrew Gaff's status amongst that cohort of three? Well, it's the only one without a premiership, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, always um, controversial when you talk about um, what Judd gave to the Eagles because it was quite truncated, uh, just six years and 134 games. And you know, Mearing was a very classy player and a uh, much-loved player well, from, our, from our inception throughout our real heyday of the 90s. So it uh, be a big call whether you, you put Gaff ahead of him. You know, he's about to go past name wearing in terms of games, as you said, but uh, very difficult to rank all three of those guys, one, two, and three. They're, um, they're almost all equal top, I think. How's that for sitting on the fence? <laughs> okay, time to turn our attention to round three. The Eagles are looking to bounce back in style against the Brisbane Lions. They play them this Saturday, 5.40 WA time at the Gabba. I think the best place to start with this are the ins and outs because there's a lot of unhappy fans uh, regarding the Eagles' performance in round two. There's a lot of people that want heads to roll. That's never specifically been the style of this coaching group to make wholesale changes and compounded even more so by the lack of waffle or or ability to play any sort of real scratch match and, and get a proper look at the reserves. So... For yourself, Miguel, where would you start with making some changes as it relates from our round two side into our round three selection? Um, well, I think you've got to start with the one force change um, with Gov going out suspended. Uh, it's between Schofield and Rotham, I think, um, for that spot. And I'm, I'm leaning towards Schofield just on the basis that this is now a real must-win game for us. And I think... As much as I love Rotham and I'd love to get some games into him, um, I think Schofield coming in, uh, when he comes in and plays with Barass, he tends to sort of take over um, the role of, of playing on the number one key forward. So that'll free Barass up a bit. And, yeah, so, and with Brisbane's tall forward line, they've got Hipwood and uh, McStay and usually a, a resting Ruckman down there. So um, I think Schofield's height and his ability to take on the real key forwards uh, will be important. And, you know, he's a mature, experienced defender. He'll come in and not miss a beat. Other than that, uh, as tempting as it would be to swing the axe and make some wholesale changes, I can't really... The problem I've got is I can't see any changes with the players we've got available that actually makes us better. No, people have said we've gone in too tall. I didn't think that was the case. We speak about the structure, but when you look at it, we've gone in with Barras and McGovern down back, uh, Kennedy and Darling and a second Ruckman and Allen up forward. Um, and that's pretty much what we've gone with. Now, when we've, in the past, when we've, because we've played now a forward line of giants or we've played, we've tried to play you know, Mitch Brown and McKenzie and Schofield and McGovern in the back line or something. So we look taller just because we've got uh, six foot five wingmen running around, but I don't think Brander's height in that position is, um, is really making us taller across the ground. He's, you know, the position he plays, I don't think it matters whether it's Chris Maston at 5'7 or whatever he was and uh, or uh, Brander at 6'5. It's you know, it's a wingman role. It's a link-up role. 
So I don't I don't buy into the argument that we were too tall. But having said that, with the conditions that we're seeing in Queensland, I don't really want to go in any taller. Um, and that means really that you can't find room for either Waterman or Williams unless you're dropping um, one of those tools. And, you know, they're not going to drop Kennedy. They're not going to drop Darling. Allen was you know, one of two guys to actually play decently, so hopefully they're not going to drop him. So, um, yeah, difficult to find room for Williams or Waterman. Um, the guys that would be under pressure and uh, getting dropped all the time on the, the changes thread on the board are really Archie and Petricelli as the, the small forwards who didn't fire. Um, Cripps didn't fire either, but uh, they're not going to drop him. He's got runs on the board, as the saying goes. Um, and we don't have really anyone in reserve to play Archie or Petricelli's spot. Uh, Jermaine Jones, I've just seen on Twitter, is apparently training with the main group, which is um, a great sign that he's made the mix. But it would be a big call, I think, to bring him in for, for Archie or Petricelli. So, yeah, um, those two guys, I think they should be under the pump. But at the moment, I think they're benefiting from the fact that Cameron's not fit and Venables is out for the year and Rioli's out for the year and there's yeah there's not a lot behind them. So just for that reason, I think they get a bit of a reprieve. Uh, Jackson Nelson's probably the other one that people have out, but I didn't think he played all that badly on the weekend. I don't recall really any goals that were as a result of his defensive stuff-ups and we'll get into matchups. Those, he'd be one of the guys in line to play on Cameron. So, yeah, I wouldn't be too quick to drop him. Very measured. Very calm. I agree with you with uh, with Nelson. Well, I've had a few days to um, <laughs> to come up with that. If you'd asked me Sunday night or Monday morning, I probably would have dropped about six or seven guys. 17 ins and outs. No, yeah. Nelson, I agree with you. I, he, for some reason, I don't actually really know what it is because a lot of the guys that are always clamouring for, we need somewhat, you know, a hard nut, we need someone to get stuck in and not take any bullshit – are also seem to be the people who lob stuff at Nelson. So I, I've never caught that dynamic. I actually thought he was quite good on the weekend, and, and certainly there were plenty of worse players than, than Jackson Nelson on the weekend, I thought. Uh, I, I just said then that you were very measured in your approach and, and very calm about it all. I'm about to show you how it's done. So I agree with you, Schofield, in McGovern out. It frees up Barras to play a bit of an intercept role. Uh, and I agree with you that there's a lot of pressure on Archie and Petrocelli, and that's why I'm axing both of them. Get rid. Archie is one up, one down. He, he's, you know, he plays a good game, and then if he gets another crack at it, he plays a poor game, and then he gets dropped. So there's an argument to say we'll stick with him, get him through it, but he's been on an AFL list now for eight or so years, and he's only played 30-odd games, maybe just under 40 games now. He, I like him as depth. I definitely like him as a forward, like a mid-sized forward more than, uh, more than a midfielder, but I just don't quite get it. If I have to see him fly for potential mark of the year one more time and then the ball gets to the ground level and the defenders just run it out, easy as you like, one, two, three, I'm, I'm probably just going to absolutely lose it. Stop flying for mark of the year, mate. Settle down. Just play your role. The one time I saw him stay on the ground, we actually kicked our first goal out of it. So Archie's gone. Uh, Petrocelli... Again, I think we need to persist with him, but he's not a forward. He, or certainly he's not a forward yet. The, the physical attributes, specifically the speed, are great if he has a chance to run, but when he rarely gets a chance to run. Unless we can spring him over the back, you never get to use that speed as a forward pocket. So I wonder whether it's time to start moving him up the ground a little bit if we are going to persist with him. So my changes, I'm going to go Schofield in for McGovern. That one's fine. That's enforced. Archie out. Now, I'm going to move Oscar Allen out of the ruck and into Archie's spot. Height-wise, that doesn't make a significant change. And then you get uh, Bailey Williams in to back up Natanui. The Lions are actually one of the few clubs that go in as tall as the Eagles do. So I agree with you. I don't buy the height argument as such. But Allen and Archie, pretty comparable. Williams coming in back up ruck, a bit more of a designated ruckman. I'm fine with that. And then the last one, you did touch on him, and it is a big call. It's certainly early in his West Coast career to be giving him an opportunity like this, but give me Jermaine Jones over Petrocelli. In 2018, we saw the Eagles really lean on putting players in a position that best suited them. So not trying to get, for example, Redden playing on the outside because we had Mitchell and Prittis on the inside in 2017. They found roles for people that suited them. They couldn't play Sheed at the, in the midfield, so he played in the waffle because we couldn't afford to carry him as a forward. And I think we're at that stage with the likes of Archie and Petrocelli 
uh, and we'll get onto Red and, and, and the wingers in just a second. But you've got these guys that might be decent footballers and, and solid depth or interesting prospects. But if you're not a forward pocket, get a forward pocket. We've got Jermaine Jones, who's, you know, maybe he's not a 10 out of 10 forward pocket option. But at the very least, let's put him in a position that is his position and see what we can do. Uh, so, yeah, for myself, I've got Jones, Williams and Schofield for Archie, Petch and McGovern. Two debutants. Well, one club debutant and one debutant. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's let's uh, swing the axe. You've almost convinced me that maybe Jones should come in for Archie, um, just because Archie, as you said, you know, gets in the forwards way a bit by flying for flying for marks when really you should be down and crumbing. They've tried to make him a forward this year and he looked against Melbourne, but he's not a natural forward. He doesn't really offer any forward defensive pressure. I uh, didn't didn't get a tackle on the weekend. Uh, you know, he just appears like a basical Jones will come in and tackle. Uh, he's a natural forward, so you've almost convinced me on that. Um, my only real concern about Jones is his lack of preparation because he was injured a bit um, over the break apparently, and uh, he did play the scratch match on the weekend, but you know, he had a bit of an interrupted uh, mini preseason. So, but. You almost convinced me on that, but I just think with Williams, if Williams comes in as well, we go a little bit too big. Nah, let's head, heads will roll. Let's get them all out of there. Um, look, we'll move along to Brisbane side of things. They've got Zorko, who may miss with an Achilles injury and some soreness, listed as the test. Uh, Marcus Adams will miss as well. But aside from that, a clean bill of health for the Lions. Similarly with the Eagles, you're looking at a, a minor setback for Mark Hutchings. Uh, so he will remain out. McGovern, of course, suspended. And Jared Cameron, similarly, uh, working through his issues over the last couple of weeks. Beyond that, you're pretty much back down to the kids that we discussed on last week's show that aren't really in selection frame. Luke Shuey supposedly pulling up quite well. Also, despite a, a couple of question marks around him. So we should have a pretty clean bill of health uh, to, to pick from, a pretty full list to pick from. It'll certainly be interesting to see ins and the outs. But let's move things along to the matchups. You touched on the Charlie Cameron matchup earlier. Four goals, two last week. He towed us up last time we played them uh, in 2019 as well. One of the most dangerous small forwards in the game, if not the most dangerous small forward. So what do we do about Charlie Cameron? Uh, I think Shep probably gets first crack at him. Um, he's our best one-on-one defender. Uh, he's pretty versatile. He can take on the, the smalls as well as the, the taller players. So I'd be giving Shep first go. But yeah, if uh, Cameron does get off the chain, as he did um, against Freo, I think, you know, it, assuming Nelson lives the cut and he's still in the team, I'd um, chuck Nelson on him. He's done some good shutdown jobs in the past. Uh, and also he can, you know, he does have that bit of aggro. He can uh, get in Cameron's face a bit and get in his personal space, maybe try and chuck him off his game that way. So, yeah, that's how I deal with him. Brisbane, uh, Cameron got a pretty tall forward line. Uh, it's a bit of an issue, I think, taking Shep, who's the sort of the third tall defender, away from a, a tall forward and playing him on um, a shortish forward pocket. But I think we can adjust for that. And you know, Hearn will have to play tall a bit. Yeah, we, we adjust for that and uh, give Shep first crack at it. Moving on to the Brisbane midfield matchup, Lockie Neal, of course, a big accumulator for the Lions. I'm going to propose something odd here, and that is that perhaps we should apply a hard tag with somebody like a Jack Redden because I don't even know necessarily that he's suited to it as such, but just hear me out on it. Redden is currently playing this defensive winger role with Brander. They're both splitting time with it. Brander, very, very quiet again in round two, although for whatever it's worth, he did have a decent fourth quarter, I thought. He linked up pretty well. Is that a sign that all of the effort had come out of the game or is that a sign that he's starting to work into it? I I can't say. But Jack Redden on this outside red wing sort of role, it, it doesn't work. It hasn't worked. And it's very 2017 in terms of that approach of, putting a square peg in a round hole because we have to get certain names into the team rather than certain players playing in their best position. So if we're just going to effectively waste him on the wing anyway, I would rather say, hey, spend some time on this guy. Start at the centre bounce or even start on the wing because Neil does spend a little bit of time outside as well and, and just follow him around. We don't have Mark Hutchings. We've shown an ability to tag in the past with Hutchie, but given that we've now got Kelly at the coalface, we've got Shuey inside and spending a bit of time outside as well. Yo's there. Uh, Sheed is there also. We don't need another guy to spend 10 centre bounces at the ball at, at the coalface and then spend his rest of his time invisible on the outside. It doesn't really add anything. So 
I think we need to put some time into Lockie Neal. I would put to you, Miguel, that perhaps Jack Redden is the guy to do it. Your thoughts? Uh, I don't mind that idea. I actually went almost the complete opposite way uh, and um, thought we'd just chuck Yo against him head-to-head. That's worked in the past with... um, Admittedly, some bigger bodied mids than uh, than Neil, like uh, Dustin Martin and, and Matt Fife. But Yo just you know, lines up alongside them and hit um, at centre bounces and you know, tries to hurt them going the other way, as well as trying to um, stop them getting the ball. Uh, I thought that could work. I didn't put much uh, time into watching the Fremantle match. This may surprise you, but if you look at Fife's numbers, um, if we're calling Yo and Fife pretty comparable in their style of play. 24 disposals for five, four marks, three goals and five clearances for Nat Fife. He obviously had a nice day against Brisbane and perhaps their coaching staff will see how they can minimise the impact of the Yo's and Kellys of the world. But yeah, that's not a bad shout either in terms of Yo and Neil spending some time on each other and trying to make, uh, well, specifically trying to make Lockie Neil accountable the other way. We've touched on our forward line dynamic a little bit in terms of the ins and outs, but let's presume we go in largely unchanged, for example. What do the Eagles need to do, Miguel, to ensure that those forward entries are of higher quality and that we're getting the Kennedys and Darlings of the world more frequently involved? Because we cannot continue to effectively, unfortunately, carry Josh Kennedy and Jack Darling if they're not going to be visible targets and consistently getting on the end of marks inside 50. Yeah, well, they need to stay out of each other's space a bit, uh, and usually they're pretty good at that, having played together so long. Try and take defenders away from the action so that if the kick does go into Kennedy, then you know, Dart's opponent's not in the vicinity to, to get in the way, and and you know, Allen's not flying across and bringing his defender through. So, yeah, we just need more more structured entries i think that's where the uh the tall forward lines that they're getting in each other's way and the ball's spilling then it's being mopped up by the smaller defenders pretty easily so um yeah i I think that's really what we need to focus on and that's almost why you convinced me i think that archie should come out for jones even though it wasn't your change but archie comes out for jones and jones can be more of a traditional crumbing forward and yeah you don't have archie as you said going for mark of the year all the time and um, you know, trying to stand on Kennedy's head and or Darling's head and bringing his opponent into the contest as well. Uh, just before we get into our predictions, the weather isn't a play factor. Currently, the fast is giving us not a lot of anything. It's saying 50% chance of rain, so we'll see pretty much what happens there. It's, it's anybody's guess. The training that's taking place at the moment looks like it's in very fine conditions, which the Eagles are experienced with, and I would back the Eagles in with absolutely if it was fine. But given... Miguel, we're in Queensland. It's a night game. At worst, it's going to be dewy. At best, it's going to be very, very wet with a little bit of rain going on as well. This kick mark game style that we've seen the Eagles excel at, it's something that we know we can do. What we don't know that we can do is any sort of plan B. So if it does come down to the wet and it's a bit of a slog again, it's a bit of a scrap, how do we go about wrestling this one away given that our 1A game style is probably not going to be on the table for large stretches of the game? We just have to switch to a, a more appropriate game style for the wet, which is you know almost the Richmond game style that's been successful for them of just moving the ball on at all costs. Um, you know, don't stop and wait and you know, wait for someone to lead and chip it around the back line, the wing. Just you know, get it on, get it forward, and you know, back our guys to win or at least contests when they come. Um, which is going to be a little bit difficult given they couldn't do that against Gold Coast last week, but hopefully they switched on this week and. Yeah, just try and slog it forward and and score that way. As I touched on earlier, perhaps neither side at their best in round two and and really trying to build into the season as quickly as possible. Miguel, I need a prediction. I need to know who's going to win and by how much and which eagle is going to impress us the most. Uh, Well, I'll pick us to win just because we have to win and I can't bring myself to pick us to lose. Um, It's going to be a close one. It's going to be difficult. The Lions are deservedly one of the, the favourites to go deep into the finals this year. Um, I won't say it's a must-win, Gus, but we just we can't put in the sort of performance we put in against Gold Coast because if we have another 40 or 50-point loss, we'll be you know, one and two with a terrible percentage and you know, trying to even scrape into finals uh, from that position in a shortened season is going to be very difficult. So um, if we at least are competitive with it, um, if we lose, then you know, we're one and two, but... Our percentage just hasn't taken such a huge hit, and uh, you know we've we've got a couple of 
a couple more games hub and then we hopefully get to come home and uh, season is still salvageable from there. But yeah, look, I'll, I'll pick us to win. I don't think it'll be, I don't think we'll run over the top of the lines. I think if we win, it'll be a close one. So I'll say uh, 10 points and our best player will be Yo um, completely killing Lockie Neal in his head-to-head matchup. Very good call. I have Yo here as well as the best player. I'll come up with a better one or a, a different one. We'll see. My call last week of Liam Ryan, by the way, I feel so vindicated in that call, and yet he was still pretty bad. Zero goals, four, and he also scored nothing from a snap in the goal square. This close to getting it right, Liam. Come on, mate. Uh, So for myself, I'm going to have a hard time not picking the Lions here, to be honest. It's a shame, uh, and I know they weren't impressive against Frio, but ultimately they did get the win. Shuey aside, nobody really stood up when the pressure was on. Now, do they work on it this week and, and you know really switch on this week and they all lift as a team? Hopefully, but it's a brave man to pick against the Lions at the moment, just given what we saw out of the Eagles last week. So I will go the Lions by 28 points. Uh, you had Yo as the best on ground. I am going to say that. Let me come up with somebody and then let me come up with a reason why as well. I'm going to say that Shannon Hearn is going to be our best player. Number one, he was terrible last week and will want to bounce back. Uh, number two, the Lions do go inside 50 at a pretty solid rate as well, so there's a good chance for rebound there. If we do get on top of things and uh, do get the win, I think there's a good chance that the backs will have had to have held up very well. So let me go with Shannon Hearn for our best on ground, uh, although I am a little bit sceptical that the Eagles will get it done. We will see. My backup, if Yo had been taken before I um, went with my prediction, was Shepard um, for shutting down Cameron. So... I've said in my prediction that we'll win by 10 points, so either either or both of, you know, Yo's beaten Neil in his head-to-head or Shepard's beaten Cameron in his head-to-head. Three votes Yo, two votes Shepard, one vote Hearn, and the Eagles get the win. Done. All right, guys, that will do it for us this week. It's been a very difficult week to be a West Coast Eagles fan. They are few and far between, but this was definitely one of them. Miguel, I hope that there's been a degree of venting and a degree of feeling slightly better. I hope I haven't made everybody feel uh, too much worse by trying to sink the boots in as well. But as always, thank you very much for coming on the show and giving us your insights nonetheless. Yeah, no worries. And, yeah, I feel better for having aired my grievances, so... (laughs) Well, round three, time for the feats of strength. We need the Eagles to pull this one out and get the job done against the Lions. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can do so on Big Footy. You can sign up, have a chat. Even when the games aren't going well, it's still a pretty fun place to be. Uh, It's a great night on Tribunal Night as well. So sign up to Big Footy and get involved with the Eagles board. If you'd like to be involved in the pod as well, send me a message. Send anybody a message on Big Footy that is involved with the podcast, and we might get you on an episode in the future. But otherwise, you can follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe and rate and do a review, all of that good stuff on iTunes. It all helps, and we would love to see the show start to build alongside the Eagles building in season 2020. We'll talk to you next week. We will review what will hopefully be a mighty Eagles win, get the sour taste out of our mouth, and move along with the Premiership Assault. But until then, I've been your host, Honey Badger 35 For Miguel Sanchez and for everybody on the Eagles board, we'll talk to you next time. Bye.